All right, if, if you have your Bibles, would you open them to Revelation chapter 3? That's where we'll be in the Word of God here this day. Revelation 3. You know, as you're turning there, I was told this morning that a uh, little joke. You know how many psychiatrists it takes to change a light bulb? We changed all of our lights in here to these LED. You know how many psychiatrists it takes to change a light bulb? One, but the bulbs got to want to change. They, they, they've got to want to. <laughs> well, with that, that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. Change. Changing of our lives. Changing of who we are. Uh, got your little one? Amen. I've been missing you. All right. Great to see you guys. We got another new young life right here with us. All right. If you're there with me in Revelation chapter 3, let's start in verse 1. We're going to see what the Lord wanted to say to his church at Sardis. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful. Strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received, how you have heard. Hold fast and repent. And therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know the hour that I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes, isn't that just what we sang about? You know what? Jesus overcame so that we can overcome through him. To those who overcome, the winners, you shall be clothed in white garments, And I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess their name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And as I read this this week and as I meditated upon what these words said, I have to tell you that when I came to the end of that first verse, And he said, you think that you're alive, but you're dead. I wonder what they felt. Because I imagine that there was excitement being built up in that congregation as they gathered that day. Word had probably spread that our beloved John, who was on the Isle of Patmos, imprisoned there for the word of the Lord and his testimony, that he has written a letter that the Lord has given to him on what he wants us to hear. And I am sure that as word got around and everyone was excited and they filled the pews like you did this morning, waiting to hear what the Lord was going to say to us. And the first thing he says is, you think you're alive, but you're dead. And I wonder how that felt and swept across the crowd. He says we're dead. You know what I've found out by reading all of these letters to the churches here? That 
I do not view things the way the Lord does. I don't have his eyes. Because every church here that thought that they were doing right ends up they weren't. And the ones who thought that they were doing wrong and being persecuted, so something must be the problem. He says, no, you are actually the ones that are doing okay. So nobody really got it right. And so that pricks my heart to say, I need to listen. I need to learn. And I need to see what the Lord is saying to me in these letters. So he says to the messenger, to the angel at the church, the one who's bringing this reading to you from my spirit, And from the Lord Jesus Christ, the first thing you will hear is, I know your works. He knows everything. He's an omniscient God. I may think that I'm in a closet, but he's there. He knows, and he sees, I know your works, that you have that name, that you think that you are alive. You're proclaiming it to everybody, but you are are dead. The Lord himself has just kind of called you the church of the living dead. It's important for us to understand what he's trying to tell them here because we have to examine ourselves. Verse 6 up there tells us, those who have an ear to hear with, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. You know why? Because we're people. And people have the same tendencies throughout histories. We all have the same tendencies. These are like historical trends that's going to continue to happen throughout the church age. And so... One writer of ode, and I I think I even heard this in history class when I was in school, said that the one thing that we end up learning from history is that nobody learns anything from history because we don't apply it to ourselves. We hear it and we forget it and think, that's not going to happen to me. But let's see what the Lord is saying to the church here at Perrigan. Let's begin with a little background on Sardis if we can. It was an ancient city. Sardis is over 4,000 years old right now. It is an ancient city. It goes way back 2,000 years before our Lord and Savior. It was the capital of the province of Lydia. If you look at the pictures up there, that mound is where the main city of Sardis was built upon. Around 1,000 feet or so above the plains that are below. They were high upon that rock. They had fortified walls around it. Down below was the Hermes Valley. There was plenty of pasture land. They had a lot of sheep. The the Hermes River and the Pactolus River met and crossed around that and formed a natural moat and a natural border around about three quarters of that mesa. It was well protected. And then, not only that, you can see what remains of 2,500 years ago, part of the wall that was built around this fortification to make it safe and secure. That is left over from that time. That gave the impression to everyone throughout all of Asia Minor that this city was impregnable. You could not penetrate it. You could not attack it because of how easily it was to defend. You could not try to climb up those steep walls, you would be just bait right there as as you would try to climb and come up that. It was easily to protect. So they thought that no one can reach us. We've got 
a valley down below. We've got the fattest sheep. We've got food. We've got wool from them. We make garments. Oh, that river that was running around it. It had crustaceans that made a certain type of dye for the wool and fabrics so that their stuff was sought after all over the world from what, how beautiful it was and long-lasting that dye was. And also, the Pactolus River was full of gold. At the time of about 550 B.C., King Croesus of Sardis was the richest man in the world. He had millions and millions of dollars of gold because the sands of that river was full of gold if you've ever heard of Midas and the Midas touch well the Greek myth is that Midas everything he touched turned to gold and so he was told as a way to get rid of that to go down and wash in the Pactolus river and when he did it all dissipated but the sand underneath turned to gold that's the way they tried to explain why there was so much gold there but he was the richest man in the world He was the Warren Buffett or the Bill Gates of our day at that time. So that sounds like a pretty good place to live, doesn't it? I mean, we got food. We've got fresh water. We've got money. We've got safety. We're high and protected. Everything is around us. Man, we have got it made. We've lived in the life. Funny how we don't see our true selves, though, do we? You have a reputation for being alive, Jesus says, but you are dead. What a vivid picture the words of Jesus paints for us. You know why? Because we tend to see things from the far away like we did a minute ago. But when you zoom in and you see all of those little caves and crevices built into the side, you know what they are? Tombs. You remember in Mark chapter 5 where there was a man of the Gadarenes and he wandered and slept among the tombs and came down from there to meet Jesus when he crossed over? You remember how Jesus, whenever he was crucified, that Joseph of Arimathea took him to the tomb that he had carved into the side of the wall. This is how they would would bury their folks at that time. They would place them into these type of things. So from a distance, you look like you've got it made. But when I zoom in and take a real close look at you, you're the church of the dead. They're right underneath of you. This is what I see whenever I zoom in and I take a look upon you. Then he says, here's the deal to you guys. Verse 4. You have a few names. Even there in Sardis. Even in Sardis. He's saying, you think you're so much. Even here, you've only got a few names who have not defiled their garments. There's a small remnant. There's a small remnant of folks here who are wearing clean garments. And they knew all about that because what did we just say their main export business was? Textiles, wool, clothing. They knew all about garments, didn't they? Now, if you go to the store to buy a new shirt or a new dress, do you want one that's stained all over and and it's got all of those defects? No, you would reject that one. You want something that's clean and, and new and looks that way. That's what Jesus is telling us here. He's saying, you guys, if, if buyers came for your garments and they were all stained and not the way they were supposed to be and spotted, you, you wouldn't be able to sell them. The buyers would reject that and leave without taking it. He's saying, I don't like the stained garments I see of the folks that are there in Sardis because you know what your garments represent? 
It represents the real you. Garments is a reflection or a figure of speech that reflects who you are, what you are clothed with as you walk through this world. It's your character. It's what you think on the inside of you. Because Proverbs says that as a man thinketh in his heart, so he really is. It's not what you see. It's what he really is and what you clothe yourself with. You know, Peter tells us this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to the elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to each other and be clothed. There you go. Be clothed with humility for God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. You see how the clothing really represents who you are and what you portray in your life to others? James in one twenty-seven tells us that pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Keep your garment, your life, unspotted from the world. Pure, undefiled, no stains in those garments that you're wearing. You are dead. Spotted garments, what does that mean? Well, spotted garments means you've got worldliness. There is sin in the life. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 really hones in and gives us a description of that. For it says, and you, every one of us, God has made alive who were dead in trespass and sins, in which you all once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once, every one of us all once, conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of our minds. We are by nature children of wrath, just as the others are. But, I love some of the buts in the Bible, but God, who is rich in mercy and because of his great love for us, which he loved us with, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ because it's by grace you are saved. You see, all of us were dead in trespasses and sins. All of us, no exception. But Jesus died to be able to take those away from us. It is by grace that we have been saved, Paul says. But God loved us even when we were dead. Most of the time we want to love folks that is easy to love. But he says, I loved all of you even when you were not easy to love. I did that for you. He, so Sardis then, going back to this illustration What separates and what causes a spotted garment is sin in the life. It's worldliness in the life. He says, you don't have clean garments because you're allowing this to infiltrate my body, the church. So he says, this should grab your attention. You're not what you think you are. So what is the cure? What is the cure for sin in the life of an individual or in the body of Christ? Well, There's five things that go a long way, Jesus is going to tell us right here, towards revival of self and revival of the body of Christ. He says this, Watchful, strengthen, remember the word of God and Bible doctrine, hold fast to it, and repent 
of the things that don't correspond with it. That's five things that is a prescription for revival in every heart and in every place. Verse 2, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. You see, there's a few left here that are about ready to wither and to die. You know why? Peer pressure. People influence people. And if my body is filled with spottedness, with garments that are stained, if worldliness is creeping in, then it will influence everyone. You know, youngsters, you think whenever you go to school, it's tough to be a Christian and to say, I am in Christ, because you've got peer pressure, you've got people that will probably try to make fun of you. What you feel you have to do is to walk a certain way, wear certain things. I need to know the catch words because, hey, I was in school. In high school, we had several catch words at the buddies, and you'd be walking through the hall, and you would say a couple of those catch words because it made you feel good and an important a part of the group. Well, he's saying here, that's what I'm talking about, influence. Your friends, your family, your classmates at work, same thing where I worked at half the people or more were not Christians I was lucky to be in a small department where a few were that you had that strengthening together but it is tough to be at work when you think that if I profess to be a Christian I'm going to get slighted I'll get overlooked for promotions things are going to happen they're going to to tease they're going to say things He's saying here that that's what starts to happen in the body of Christ. That if you allow a lot of individuals to begin to come in and to coerce, that they can change the structure of my body into something that I didn't design it to be. You're to walk in my word and my way and to be led by my Holy Spirit. Peter, great apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter wasn't immune to peer pressure. You know, Jews were not supposed to hang out with Gentiles. That's just something that they didn't do back in those days. They secluded them and put them off. But God had to come to Peter in a dream and three times tell him, what I have made clean, don't you call unclean. I have accepted them. You need to accept them. Somebody's going to come and tell you to go and talk to them. So, These people arrive and grab Peter and take him to Joppa to a house of a man named Cornelius. When he was there, Cornelius began to explain to Peter. Cornelius is a Gentile. He's a soldier. And he begins to explain how that the Spirit had revealed to him to go send word to Joppa for a man named Peter who will tell you the words of life and everything that you need to know. And so here I and my family all sit waiting to hear what you are going to say to us. Peter looks down and he says, God has made it clear to me that he is not a respecter of persons, that he has accepted the Gentiles and he baptized Cornelius and his entire house into Christ that very day. But later, Peter an apostle of God, knowing that God has accepted the Gentiles, 
Paul has to write this in Galatians chapter 2 and verses 11 through 13 when he says, When Peter came to Antioch, I withstood him to the face. He says, I got in his grill. I got right in Peter's grill because he was doing something. What was he doing? He was to be blamed because certain men came with James or from James and he was eating with the Gentiles. Now think of this. The Jews weren't there yet, and so he was, he was fellowshipping with the Gentiles. But all of a sudden, some of his cronies start to walk in from back in Jerusalem that were Jewish, and he knew that they probably hadn't yet accepted the Gentiles like he had. Let's continue reading. When these men came, he withdrew himself from the Gentiles. He separated himself, fearing those guys who had just come of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. That means when they followed his influence, didn't he? Peter withdrew, so the rest of the people followed him and played a hypocrite just like he did. Even Barnabas, the the son of exhortation, got carried away with this by the hypocrisy and left. So one person in a congregation felt peer pressure when some other folks walked in. And so he followed their lead. And then the rest of the Jews that believed and followed him there followed him and split it. Made a hypocrisy of it. That is the power of influence that people can have upon your life if you allow it. Don't let that happen. We are to be overcomers. We're to be led by the Spirit and the Word of God to not to allow these things to affect us in our life. Don't allow that to take place in class, in your work, and in the church, in the body of Christ. We are to be transformed, not conformed to this world. So, when things began to come into the church at Sardis, they tended to overlook some things and allow it to come. They said, live and let live, possibly. Grace will cover it. You know those kind of ideas. Let's just, I'm just glad that they're here. We don't have to tell them about the Word of God. Sardis, Jesus says, you think you've got it going on. Boy, you could be a mega church growing and people talking about you and thinking you're so alive. But when Jesus zooms in and takes a look at the personal relationship that you're supposed to have with him, it's about that time that he says, no, you're really dead. So he writes to the messenger there, to the, to the pastor, to the one who is going to be teaching them. And he says some things. He says, first of all, I hold you in my hand. So in other words, you're under my authority. So you're going to teach what I tell you to do, what I've put in my word for you to teach to the people. Here's what I want you to tell them. Verse 2 again. Pastor, be watchful. Tell everyone in the congregation to be watchful for these things. That word means to be totally alert, to be on guard and ready at all times. Don't become distracted, don't relax, don't feel comfortable, but always be ready and on guard because things can come unwound really quickly. Then, when doctrine begins to be deflected and and shunned, you are ready to react. What do you do? You strengthen It said the next thing that you do is strengthen. Now that word for strengthening what remains, that's the people who are beginning to 
to slide away. And then it's going to go on to say who are about ready to die. You know, he's referring to us like plants. Plants need water and nourishment, don't they? I used to have some tomato plants a few years ago that I kept leaving them out and not planting them. I never did. I was busy. I didn't get around. Every day you'd come in and they're all wilted and hanging down and I'd shoot them with some water that night and boy, they'd stand right back up. Back down, back. They got to have water of the word of God. We're like plants. If you don't get the nourishment that you need and if you don't get strengthened, you're about ready to die and you will fall off on the vine. And especially when you got an enemy who wants to apply weed killer to the place, you've got a prescription for disaster. So, strengthen them. Give them the word of God. Put that in there. And that word for strengthen there is a two-fold process. I don't know if you've ever driven or had a house built or driven by when they're building houses. But when you put the walls first up, the framing, it's easy to blow over. What do they do? They take more boards and prop it up, don't they? They prop those up so that they are not easily... That's what we're to do, to start to strengthen each other. You know what the second fold process is? Then you begin to put the brick on the outside and the drywall on the inside. And then you know what happens? The walls become unmovable. So when it says watch and strengthen, we first of all take the weaknesses and address them. And then day by day you build upon that. You build with the word of God. You build with fellowship. And you build an edification complex within your soul that becomes unmovable. But it doesn't happen overnight. It's a process. And so you are to learn and build and brick by brick and drywall and screw and nail. And soon you have a body, you have a building that is unmovable. That no longer just needs to be propped up because it's shaky. But it is solid and standing firm because everybody is filled with the word of God. And now you don't have to worry about the pressure and the influence that people can have upon you. Because you are all rooted and grounded in the truth. We are strengthened. Last week we talked about the sevenfold work of the spirit. He helps with all of that. He gives us, said, wisdom, knowledge, understanding, counsel, might. He will rest upon us. That helps to strengthen and prop us up as well with the word of God when we're taught. Then he goes on to say, your works are not perfect before God. And that word for perfect there means to begin a process of filling up. It doesn't mean to be like, oh, you're perfect in life. No, it means... To become more full each and every time is what this means. So it's like pouring water into a glass is what it used to refer to. So as that water of the word begins to fill me, my glass starts out not being perfect, not being full before him, but pretty soon it fills up. And it fills me up into the knowledge of who and what I am supposed to be and worship. Remember what you have received. There you go. The word of God. Remember what you received and what you heard and hold fast to it. And if you're not following it, listen, learn, repent. And that means to change. Like the light bulb has to want to change. We have to want to change to be screwed in and become bright 
in the light of Christ. My word is supposed to have its authority over you. Jesus says, remember what you've received and heard. And if you will not listen, if you decide that I do not desire the word of God for my life and allow the spirit to provide me with the wisdom and the understanding and the counsel through it all, and if you don't reverence me as your Lord and God and watch and strengthen, then I'm going to come, he says. I am going to come to you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You know, Jesus used that several times in his ministry, didn't he? We've, we've heard that. Matthew 24 is up there for you to take a look at it as one of the times that he did. When he says, watch, therefore, there's that word again, watch. You do not know the hour the Lord is coming, but know this. If the master of the house know what time the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you guys always be alert, be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you don't expect. Paul also knew that everyone seemed to understand this phrase as a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he used it this way. Concerning the times and the seasons, you don't need for me to write. You know all that. You yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as the thief in the night. And when they say peace and safety, sudden destruction ends up coming. Don't allow that day to overtake you as a thief, he says in verse 4. You are all sons of light. We, do not, we are not of the night or darkness, so don't fall asleep, but be watchful, be vigilant, and be sober. Peter also said that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering to us, that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord can come as a thief in the night in which the heavens are going to pass away with a great noise and the elements with a fervent heat. The earth and the works that are then will be burned up. Therefore, since all of these things will be dissolved, how should we clothe ourselves with our garments? We should be conducted in holiness and godliness. Sardis knew all about this phrase, a thief in the night. You know why? Because that's where it was coined. That's where it was originated. It originated from Sardis back in about 540 some BC. You know, we talked about how it was built upon that high hill. They thought that nobody could get to them, that everything was safe and sound. Well, guess what happened? Sardis had one entrance at the front that needed to be guarded because it didn't have as high and steep of a hill and it didn't have the river guarding as a moat. So that's where they sent their uh, troops to guard the front entrance. Well, we said King Croesus was the richest guy in the world. Cyrus, and he's mentioned in the Bible. Cyrus, the king of Persia, wanted to come and conquer Sardis and to get that goad. So he put a siege around the bottom of this big, big uh, meza. And for 14 days, they were trying to figure out how to get up there. He gave a reward that if anyone could figure that out, I will reward you greatly. So there was a couple of spies that was sitting there watching. And what they found out, that on the back side, there was a, a guy walking and his helmet fell off and started bounding down that long hill. And they watched him look around, and he didn't think anyone was watching. He snuck out through a small opening, 
climbed down that hill through a little hidden trail, grabbed his helmet, came back up quickly and went in. So Herodias is the guy's name that watched. He saw this and he went back and told Cyrus and he said, this is what happened. And Cyrus said, okay. And they spent a couple of days watching and looking. And one night they decided to attack and they sent their troops up that little trail that was hidden in the back. And you know what? The city lay asleep. There was a guard at the front gate, but in the back they thought no one could ever scale that cliff. It was unguarded. That small entrance on that huge cliff, they said a child could have stood there with a spear and protected them. But because they didn't watch and hadn't strengthened that little area, they filed in one by one the army of Cyrus. And they went in and they captured the city, took control of it because they weren't watchful. And historians that wrote about this said that they came in like a thief in the night. By the time it came to Jesus' time, it had happened one other time. That was like 546 B.C. You can Google it. Cyrus capturing Sardis and read about it. But then, 250 years later, it happened again. Some other people wanted to invade. They used the same tactic because they had learned from history, but Sardis hadn't. They again thought no one was going to come and do that again and left it, and they got overran again. So twice it happened. So now our Lord is saying, you guys know all about this thief in the night. You know all about how you're supposed to be watchful, but you don't do it. By the time of Jesus, it was one of the most famous sayings in their their day. So they all knew about this. Be watchful, be alert, be led by my word. Don't let folks in your body die off and become complacent like that. Learn from history. So if you don't, I will come and visit you as a thief. And you won't be ready because you're not alert. Be watchful. Be strong. And so Andy, as as you go up to get our youth and the worship team returns. There are some, Jesus said, who have not defiled their garments. Those folks are called overcomers. They have believed in me. They followed my way and they were watchful. They remained strong and they were filled with my spirit. Those who listen and do that, he says, you're going to be rewarded. They are going to walk with me for eternity in white. They are worthy. He that overcomes will be clothed with white garments, unstained, undefiled. And I promise I will not blot their name out of the book of life. That's a promise from a God that can't lie. Do you know that? I will not blot your name out. Overcome. Be watchful. Stay ready. And I will not blot your name out. What a promise that we have for the bride of Christ. But if you are here and you have never chose Jesus Christ as your Savior and the Lord of your life, if you have not followed Him in baptism to be washed and to become a new creature, I pray that somehow, some way, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit working upon your heart will say that today is the day. That I want that white garment. I want my name in the book of life. I don't want to end up with destruction and despair. So I hope that you will choose that today. That Jesus 
died on the cross for you. For every one of you. And for your sins. And he says this. If you will confess me this day as Savior. Then I promise to confess your name before my God. And before his angels that you are one of mine. And you will dwell with me for eternity. We'll close with this. Verse 6. If you got an ear. Won't you hear today what the Spirit is saying to the churches? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy and divine word. And we thank you for your son, Jesus, who overcame and provided a way for us to overcome as well. And to be clothed in white, to be written in the book of life, and to never spend any time away from you. Father, we pray that your spirit is welcome here and is moving around the hearts of all of those today. If there is one who needs to obey this call, may they come forward now and forever confess you and one day you'll confess them before the Father and his angels. And we ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.